I sit downstairs with coffee and the paper, staring out the window as my mind whirs. At 6.30, I hear the shower come on in the master bath. Glenn is awake and getting ready for work. At 6.45, I pull the duvet off Ruby, who snatches it back and curls herself into it, larval, and says, Ten more minutes. At seven, I lean over, first Alex, then Max, and bury my nose into their necks, beginning to smell the slightly pungent scent of male beneath the sweetness of child. Okay, okay, Alex says irritably. Max says nothing, just lurches from bed and begins to pull off an oversized t-shirt as he stumbles into the bathroom. There's a line painted down the center of their room. Two years ago, they came to me at a loose end on a June afternoon and demanded the right to choose their own colors. I was distracted, and I agreed. They did a neat job, measured carefully, put a tarp on the floor. Alex painted his side light blue, Max lime green. The other mothers say, You won't believe what Jonathan or Andrew or Peter told me about the twins' room. Maybe if the boys had been my first children, I would have thought it was insane too, but Ruby broke me in. She has a tower of soda cans against one wall of her bedroom. It is either an environmental statement or just one of those things you do when you are 15. Now that she is 17, she has outgrown it, almost forgotten it, but because I made the mistake of asking early on when she would take it down, she never has. I open Ruby's door, and although it doesn't make a sound, she has oiled the hinges, I think, probably with baby oil or bath oil or something else nonsensically inappropriate, so we will not hear it creak in the nighttime. She says, I'm up. I stand there waiting because if I take her word for it, she will wrap herself in warmth again and fall into the long tunnel of sleep that only teenagers inhabit, halfway to coma or unconsciousness. Mom, I'm up, she shouts, and throws the bedclothes aside and begins to bundle her long wavy hair atop her head. Can I get dressed in peace, please, for a change? She makes it sound as though I constantly let a bleacher full of spectators gawk as she prepares to meet the day. Only Glenn emerges in the least bit cheerful, his suit jacket over one arm, He keeps his white coats at the office. They are professionally cleaned and pressed and smell lovely, like the cleanest of clean laundry. Dr. Latham is embroidered in blue script above his heart. From upstairs, I can hear the clatter of the cereal into his bowl. He eats the same thing every morning, leaves for work at the same time. He wears either a blue or a yellow shirt with either a striped tie or one with a small repeating pattern. Occasionally, a grateful patient gives him a tie as a gift, printed with tiny pairs of glasses, an eye chart, or even eyes themselves. He thanks these people sincerely, but never wears them. He is not tidy, but he knows where everything is, on which chair he left his briefcase, in what area of the kitchen counter he tossed his wallet, He does something with the corners of his mouth when things are not as they should be.
when the dog is on the furniture, when the children and their friends make too much noise too late at night, when the red wine glasses are in the white wine glass rack. It has now pressed itself permanently into his expression, like the opposite of dimples. Please spare me, says my friend Nancy, her eyes rolling. If that's the worst you can say about him, then you have absolutely no right to complain. Nancy says her husband, Bill, a tall, gangly scarecrow of a guy, leaves a trail of clothing as he undresses like fairy tale breadcrumbs. He once asked her where the washing machine was. I thought it was a miracle that he wanted to know, she says when she tells this story, and she does often. It turned out the repairman was at the door and Bill didn't know where to tell him to go. Our washer is in the mudroom off the kitchen.